<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Over the years, many people in many different ways have described justices of the Supreme Court. But, you know, to me, they remind me always of college students. For most of the year, it seems, they do absolutely nothing. Then, toward the end of the school year, at the very last minute, they suddenly get very busy, pull all-nighters, write lots of papers, whip up two or three weeks of intense activity, and then disappear again for the next 10 months. So it is with the Supreme Court, which we seldom hear about until the end of their term. But once we do, it's always fireworks, and often with unexpected twists, turns, and changes in direction. This term, which ended last week of the United States Supreme Court, was no exception, with a whole string of controversial opinions ranging from abortion to immigration to gay rights to Native American rights, which today's guest, Adam Liptak, senior Supreme Court correspondent for the New York Times, has called a buffet of blockbusters. Hello, Adam. Good to connect with you again. And you, Bill. Great to be here. So, you know, to an outsider like me, um, looking at the court from some distance, even though I live only about six blocks away, uh, it seems that this term turned out to be a pretty uh, unusual year with an unusual number of uh, important cases, which we might not have expected, and an unusual number of unexpected partners in deciding those cases. is that a correct observation? Yeah, that's the bottom line, and you're right on both scores. Uh, although the court only decided 53 cases after argument, very small number, smallest since the Civil War era, uh, they managed to decide a bunch of very significant cases, including on abortion, gay and transgender rights, uh, subpoenas for the president's financial records, three big religion cases, a big Native American uh, rights case. Uh, so it was a real series of blockbusters. And they didn't come out the way, you know, cynics think the cases all come out, which is five to four with the five more conservative uh, appointees, all the Republican appointees in the majority and the four liberals in dissent. Uh, it was on balance uh, a quite moderate term and both sides got something. And not all the decisions were five, four, even when the liberals picked up uh, a vote some of the decisions were lopsided. So it was a very interesting term. And I think the court modeled a kind of behavior for the country and for the political branches of trying to steer away from the raw partisanship we see Hmm. uh, out in the land and in Congress and uh, and elsewhere. Uh, Interesting. I I enjoyed your description of it in one of the New York Times articles as a Buffet of blockbusters. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised my editors uh, let me get away with that. <laughs> and I thought it was good. Well, let's start with one of the earlier decisions, which may have said, uh-oh, keep your eye on the court this time around. And that's the 
uh, the DACA decision, the Dreamers decision, which was decided 5-4, with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the four liberals uh, in denying what Donald Trump's position, contradicting the president. What does that tell us about Roberts? I think this case and the second one, which I'll talk about in a second, demonstrate that John Roberts has no patience with legal shortcuts that the Trump administration wants to employ to achieve its goals. I don't think he has a particular problem with the goals themselves. And if they were just willing to do the work and adequately justify their decisions, he would have voted with them. But in this DACA case, DACA, of course, is the uh, Obama administration program that uh, protects young immigrants known as dreamers from deportation and allows them to work. In the DACA case, the Trump administration wanted to rescind the program. And that actually sounds perfectly logical. Obama uh, initiated the program by executive action. Why shouldn't the successive president who disagrees with the policy be able to rescind it by executive action. But the Trump administration wasn't willing to say they disagreed with the policy. Mm -hmm. They came up with a rationale that didn't make a ton of sense that said uh, Obama was not authorized to to initiate the program in the first place. Therefore, it was unlawful from the beginning. And uh, Chief Justice Roberts said that justification just doesn't make sense. It's not good enough. And I'm going to send it back and you can try again. And they will. (laughs) Um, And it's very similar, Bill, to a a case last term where the Trump administration wanted to put a citizenship question on the census form. On the ballot. On the census. Right. Right. And and there, too, the chief joins the five liberals and says, "The, the rationale you've given us which was to enforce the Voting Rights Act, which is not um, a policy one associates with the Trump administration, was was pretextual, was contrived, was in bad faith. So those two cases show you that the Chief Justice, whatever his view of the underlying policies, just has no patience for the Trump administration taking legal shortcuts. So one could be reading too much into the DACA decision about John Roberts to say that he's a born-again liberal or centrist? Yeah, I think it's easy to go too far. Although, as we'll talk through the cases, I imagine, um, we will see enough data points to suggest that his voting record as a whole is trending left, meaning he's uh, he's arrived at uh, at the middle position in the court the central uh, position that used to be held by the longtime swing justice, Anthony Kennedy. Right. Well, you and your colleagues did a great job in the Sunday New York Times of showing how the court has veered and all these, how these different coalitions kind of, uh, kind of came together. But um, I, I jotted down a few of them. So with, for, for, for John Roberts, right, he joined with the, with the uh, Ford liberals in the Louisiana abortion case. Uh, in the uh, LGBTQ workers case, um, he voted six. He was in the majority, six to three. The Trump financial records case, he was in the majority again, seven to two. The rogue electors case, of course, part of the unanimous uh, decision. Um, I think it was you that called this a blockbuster turn to the center for John Roberts. 
uh, I'm not sure I use those precise words, but I think they're right. Um, really? He, yeah. He has uh, really... I mean, that's, uh, huge. that's huge, isn't it, for him? It's, it's huge, and it also demonstrates that he has become the most powerful chief justice since probably 1937. Wow. He was in the majority 98% of the time. He dissented only twice in the entire term. Uh, he was in the majority in all but one of a dozen 5-4 or 5-3 decisions. Um, so it's this is really the Roberts Court. I mean, we talk about courts by the name of the uh, chief justice as a matter of routine, you know, the Burger Court, the Rehnquist Court, the Warren Court. But really, until quite recently, this has been the Kennedy Court because Kennedy had the controlling vote. Now the chief justice is not only the chief justice itself, a powerful position, but also the median justice ideologically, which means he's really driving this train. Is it legacy that he is aware of and concerned about and uh, actively, you know, working to uh, establish? Um, I'm sure that's part of it. I think maybe a larger part of it is his commitment as Chief Justice to being the custodian of the court's institutional reputation. He talks a lot about the court not being a political institution, but a legal one. And, you know, sometimes that's met with a kind of eye rolling, but it's harder to roll your eyes after a term like this, where the chief really did seem to demonstrate that uh, the court is not anyone's lapdog, that it's an authentically independent institution. And then I want to say one more thing. I mean, it's very easy to ascribe all kinds of motives to the justices. I bet as they vote in each case, they're not thinking about legacy. They're not thinking about institution. They're not thinking about politics. They're trying to figure out the correct legal answer. Mm -hmm. uh, and then over time, you accumulate enough data that you can draw other kinds of conclusions and uh, maybe talk about trends and maybe even psychoanalyze them and question their motives. But to a large extent, they're judges and they're trying to find the right legal answer. In, in listening to your response there, you reminded me of the day a couple of years ago when uh, Roberts, it was the first time I think we might have seen um, him uh, kind of strike, strike out independently on his own uh, in response to Donald Trump complaining about Republican judges, right? No, yes. Democratic Democratic judges. Obama judges. Obama, that was it, yeah. And Roberts really went after him on that. Yeah, so, that, I mean, Roberts is a tightly controlled, extremely smart, mild-mannered uh, guy and not easily roused to a response, particularly when, you know, responding to Donald Trump, who knows how that's going to go. <laughs> right. uh, but yeah, I think it was in, on, around Thanksgiving of uh, 2018, uh, the president was unhappy with a uh, district court's ruling on his asylum policy. And he said, oh, that was an Obama judge. And apparently the chief justice had just had enough. So he put on a statement saying there's no such things as Obama judges and Clinton judges and uh, Trump judges. Uh, there are just judges doing their level best uh, to do right uh, to uh, litigants, uh, powerful and not. Now, 
you know, who, who doesn't like such a statement that's very nice and you want to believe it? At the same time, you know, the political science data shows that there are Obama judges and there are uh, <laughs> Bush judges. Right. And, they, and they don't vote always differently, but they vote differently enough that it's statistically meaningful. Right. So um, Donald Trump complained after the DACA decision. He said, you get the feeling the court doesn't like me? <laughs> uh, well, over, you know, over. that was, I thought, a fairly astute comment because I thought that was exactly what that um, <laughs> decision was meant to convey, that the rationales he offers for some of his moves uh, are not plausible. And the court, I don't know that they don't like him, but they don't trust him, or at least the majority doesn't trust him. And um, overall, did he have a good year or a bad year at in the court? The administration? Yes. The administration went about 50-50 this term. Over the course of the Trump administration, uh, it has, for the first time since FDR, lost more often than it's won. So the administration is not doing well in the court. Wow. Now, you know, that counts criminal cases, say, where the court is sometimes skeptical of prosecutorial overreach. So not all of those cases are politically salient cases. But if you ask how the uh, administration represented by the Solicitor General's office, when it's a party in a case is doing, the answer is not well. Right. And in particularly, again, I want to get to, as you indicated, some of the case by case, some of the more important cases. But uh, speaking about how Donald Trump was um, received, if you will, on the court. His own appointee, um, Neil Gorsuch, wrote the majority opinion in the uh, LGBTQ, case, LGBTQ yes. case, and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, his two appointees, voted against him on the financial records case. Right. He, he might have been surprised by, right? And um, my colleague Maggie Haberman's reporting uh, is that uh, Trump is furious with these guys and is actually asked around uh, to see whether there's anything he can do uh, in, in response to these particular votes. Um, you know... What could he do? Nothing. You know, the, the, the great thing here is you, you, you choose the best person you can find. You try to assure yourself that in the main, they're going to vote as you wish them to. But then the Constitution gives them life tenure. And they're serious independent judges. And for sure, both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are going to, in the main, uh, cast conservative votes. But they're also going to look at each case, case by case. And in the LGBTQ case, um, Justice Gorsuch employing a conservative method of statutory interpretation called textualism, in which you don't look at what lawmakers thought they wanted to achieve, but you look at the words of the statute, you look at what uh, those words say, and he concluded that the words of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which prohibits uh, employment discrimination based on sex, uh, necessarily prohibits discrimination against uh, based on sexual orientation or based on gender identity. And, you know, that was a good faith, earnest, conservative holding that happened to reach a liberal result. Right. Uh, and as you said, Bill, the, the chief went along with that, including the court's four more liberal members. But the more interesting case, of course, is the 
tax records, the financial records case, where I think uh, the two Trump appointees showed some real independence, particularly in the case involving the subpoena from the Manhattan District Attorney, uh, in which they flatly rejected President Trump's central claim, which was a very bold claim, that he is absolutely immune, not only from prosecution, but even from investigation by state prosecutors while he remains in office. Um, and that harkened back, in a way, to the Nixon tapes case, where President Nixon's three appointees voted against him, and to the Clinton against Jones case, the sexual harassment case brought against Bill Clinton, where Clinton's two appointees voted against him. And I think it's a good day for the court if you don't have predictable voting uh, from uh, president's appointees in favor of the president. So uh, these are relatively few cases to draw too many conclusions from. But can you say then, we certainly identify the four liberals on the court, uh, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Leto, certainly clearly the the two most conservative members, is there developing a sort of a um, a soft middle of um, Roberts, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh? Or is it yes, that's very that's that's very astute, Bill. That's that's quite right, and that's where the action is. If you want to look at the precise middle of the court, it's um, it's the Chief Justice, but close behind, voting with uh, him quite a lot is Brett Kavanaugh, and 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 a fair bit also uh, is Justice Gorsuch. Another way to think about it is when an advocate appears before the court, he or she will often say, well, the liberals are locked in on one side. Thomas and Alito are locked in on the other. But I have three people I think I can persuade. And this could, you know, this is not necessarily someone arguing in in favor of a liberal cause or a conservative cause. It's just someone who is going to stand before the court and get the sense of and let the public get the sense of that this the results aren't baked in, that this court is on the whole open-minded and people are open to persuasion and the people who seem to be most open to persuasion are those uh, three justices in the middle, the soft middle you identified. Adam Lipdak is a senior uh, Supreme Court correspondent for the great New York Times, joining us here today on the Bill Press Pod. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back and look at some of the big cases decided this year. Today's podcast with Adam Liptak from the New York Times, brought to you appropriately by the American Federation of Teachers, right in the heart of action these days, because schools are set to reopen, in theory at least, next month. Should they reopen? And if so, how? Donald Trump says reopen full bore, just like, like we reopen beaches and parks which some people say went too fast and too far. On the other hand, the American Federation of Teachers under President Randy Weingarten says, not so fast, take things carefully, take things slowly, and let health officials dictate how and when we reopen schools. My vote goes with Randy Weingarten and the AFT, not with Donald Trump, and our thanks go to the AFT for their support of the Bill Press Pod. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. 
So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back on today's Bill Press Pod with Adam Liptak from the uh, New York Times. Adam, thanks again for joining us. Let's Mm -hmm. look at some of the cases. Uh, We've talked a little bit about the financial records case, uh, the, the court saying that Donald Trump does have to turn uh, over his financial records. He's not. But isn't it strange that that um, it's news that for the Supreme Court to reaffirm that the president is not above the law? I mean, like, duh, right? <laughs> yeah, you would think so, uh, except, and this is characteristic of the maximalist vision of Donald Trump's uh, idea of the presidency, that's essentially the argument he made to the court. So, no, it wouldn't be news, and it would be a truism if the court just wrote in passing uh, that the president is not above the law. But it is news when the president claims that, and the Supreme Court rebuffs him uh, categorically. And also, you know, the Justice Department, to its credit, uh, filed a brief that didn't go as far as the president's private lawyers went. Uh, but the Justice Department, too, said... Uh, in order for Manhattan prosecutors to get these financial records, they had to meet an extraordinarily high standard. The court rejected that too. So it was a bad day for the administration. In in what sense? Because they lost uh, the, the, those two cases on financial records? They- yes. Well, and let's, let's be clear. They didn't lose entirely. Um, there were two cases. We've been talking mostly about the case from New York prosecutors. That now goes back to the uh, lower courts, and Trump's lawyers can still make the usual arguments that anyone can make, that the subpoena is too broad, that it's too burdensome, that it's harassing. I don't expect those arguments to go very far, but they might go far enough to get us past the election. So they bought some time. They bought some time. And also in the New York case, it's a grand jury subpoena. So even if he's made to turn over his records under grand jury secrecy rules, 
they will stay secret until someone, the president, someone else, one of his associates is indicted. So that's one case. In the second case, in truth, Trump did a little better. Uh, their congressional committees were seeking his financial records, and the court sent that case back to the lower courts to say, listen, we're not sure that you committees necessarily have a right to these records because it's true you can get information from the president or anyone else if it helps you in your legislative function, if it's information you need to, uh, to pass wise laws. But we think the fit between what you're asking for and your legislative responsibilities is unclear, so we're sending it back. And that case was more like a draw. The New York case was a loss for the president. Right. One case that has not gotten perhaps as much attention as um, I think it might deserve is Oklahoma, um, with the Native Americans there. I mean, some people that I know from Oklahoma have said basically uh, the Native Americans won control over like half the state of Oklahoma. Yeah, it's a huge decision. And unfortunately, it came down on the last day of the term when a lot of people were focused on the uh, financial records cases, but it is an authentic blockbuster. And here, too, you had Justice Gorsuch uh, writing and joining the four more liberal members of the court in a five to four decision. So it's another instance of uh, the liberals picking off one of the more conservative justices. Justice Gorsuch has always been very strong on Native American rights, both at the Supreme Court and as an appeals court judge. Uh, I think it matters that he's a Westerner and he takes seriously uh, the dark history of our relations with uh, indigenous people in the United States. And Justice Gorsuch is going to hold uh, the United States to its treaties and to its promises. Uh, the practical impact of the decision is yet to be seen. What we know for sure is that state authorities can no longer prosecute cases involving Native Americans, that that has to be done by federal or tribal authorities. So that's a, that's a big move. That will affect thousands of cases. But it's also probably going to have an impact on family law, on tax law, on mm -hmm. casinos, on liquor sales. It, <laughs> it really reorients uh, the eastern half of Oklahoma into uh, tribal jurisdiction. It's a it's a hell of a big move. Yeah, astounding decision. Um, I have a hard time understanding the implications, uh, particularly long-term and even short-term, of the Louisiana abortion case. Uh, it, this was identical to a case that the Supreme Court rejected a couple of years ago from Texas, right? Yes, so the exact same law in 2016 in Texas uh, was... Yeah. was mm -hmm. um, was struck down. And I think this is a case where Roberts votes with uh, the liberals in a 5-4 decision, but doesn't join their opinion, writes his own opinion. And here, just as the chief justice was, uh, was offended by uh, some of the Trump administration's litigation tactics, here I think he was offended by abortion opponents' litigation tactics, who come back to the court just four years later with a challenge to precisely the same law, but now in Louisiana. And 
you know, John Roberts is no fan of abortion rights, and he has never before voted to strike down uh, an abortion restriction. Uh, but I don't think he had the patience to say, listen, just we've had a change of personnel in the court. You think you can come knocking at our door four years later with the same case and think we're going to give you a different result? No. Respect for precedent demands that we adhere to precedent, even precedent we don't like. And presumably he doesn't like this precedent because he was in dissent in the Texas case. He was right. on the other side in the Texas case. So what does that mean about the precedent of Roe v. Wade? That's what everyone's trying to figure out. Well, so I don't think it tells us a ton. Uh, in the short term, we're going to have other kinds of abortion restrictions reach the court. And if I had to guess, I'd say Roberts is going to allow most restrictions. On the ultimate question, if, is there a constitutional right to abortion at all? I would first of all say that he will do everything he can to try to avoid having to decide that question. Mm -hmm. If if he's made to decide the question, um, this Louisiana case in which he respected an abortion precedent gives you some ammunition for the idea that maybe he'd respect the Roe precedent, but it's it's a tough tough question and. It's hard to know. I guess I'd say this, that uh, Roberts has been occasionally frustrating to uh, his conservative supporters, uh, notably in the Affordable Care Act cases where he twice voted to uphold the Affordable Care Act. But really, his until this last term, his liberal votes have been few and far between. Now that he's kind of getting the hang of it, uh, and now that... Uh, <laughs> He's 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 no longer um, welcome, you know, at the Federalist Society. Uh, who knows? It's hard to say. Yeah. Well, just when uh, progressives around the country might have started feeling good about some of the decisions coming down, uh, then they were really shook when Steve Breyer and Elena Kagan joined the conservatives in voting on the contraceptive. Uh, issue saying that employers had a right to deny uh, health insurance for coverage for contraception based on their religious beliefs. What was that all about? Yeah, so here too, it's a it's a tiny bit complicated, but it's but it's worth walking through it. Here too, the Affordable Care Act uh, doesn't say anything about contraception coverage. It said uh, women's health care should be covered, and it left it to uh, a, the, an agency to decide what should be covered. And the Obama administration says uh, 14 modes of contraception approved by the FDA have to be covered as part of the insurance coverage most employers offer their female workers. And the Obama administration says, we're going to exclude from this requirement houses of worship, churches, synagogues, mosques, that, uh, that don't want to offer this coverage because it uh, offends their faith. Okay, so that's what Obama does. Mm -hmm. Trump comes in and says, we're going to broaden the exemptions to any employer with religious or moral objections. So it way uh, broadens the exemption, but it's doing the same basic thing the Obama administration did. And so what uh, Kagan and Breyer say is, listen, on that question, are they allowed to do it by the statute? 
we got to say yes. If the one administration could do it, the other administration could do it, but broader. But they said the lower court needs to examine whether they've offered an adequate justification for doing it. That was not an issue in the case. The only question at issue in the case was were they allowed to do it in the first place mm-hmm. under the statute, not whether they'd offered adequate justification. That adequate justification is like the question in DACA, like the question in the census case. So it was a fairly technical uh, concurrence by uh, Breyer and Kagan. And I, you know, my own feeling is that as a, as a, as a technical legal matter, uh, it, it, it tracked, it made sense. Well, that gets to the point of the role of Elena Kagan. You know, she doesn't get as much attention as most of the other justices, but I've heard her described, and there's a wonderful New Yorker profile recently about her, and I've heard her described as the master technician uh, or tactician, I guess is a word, uh, on the court. How, how do you rate her role on the court? Yeah, Margaret Talbot wrote a wonderful uh, profile of, of Elena Kagan. Kagan, uh, you know, former dean of the Harvard Law School, um, a member of the Clinton administration, uh, is a highly political person. And I say that in the, in, in, in the positive sense of the word. Uh, she's a, a great strategist. She knows how to build coalitions. She knows how to appeal to the other side. And it's at least possible that some of her centrist votes are an effort to um, build bridges. She's also taken a very hard line on precedent. She has uh, voted in ways that can't be easy for her, uh, notably in a case on unanimous juries. But because the precedent required it, she said, it required her to vote that way. And I think she was trying to model a kind of behavior for the chief justice about other precedents. So she's a canny tactician, uh, an excellent writer. Uh, I think the, the intellectual engine of the left side of the court. And I think she's making some inroads on the right, you know, some inroads. Mm-hmm. No, she has seemed to, be, seemed to become more and more of a force uh, on the court. I, I want to ask you about, in response to uh, to COVID this year, of course, the court did something that's never done before, uh, accepting oral arguments and uh, live oral arguments, which you were able to follow uh, as well as the rest of the rest of us, right? Not just those reporters. Yeah. No, I mean, How it, did that, did it work? And do you think uh, they might do it again? Uh, so of the available alternatives, it was a pretty good one. Um, the court heard arguments by telephone um, and people could listen in. And I think it showed the court in a good light. I mean, let people see that here's a branch of government which is governed by logic and reason and civility. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm hoping the court doesn't go back from live audio coverage. Uh, in their way, though, the telephone arguments were frustrating because the justices asked questions one at a time, uh, and that took away from the natural free flow of an argument. And the chief justice was made to be kind of the timekeeper, cutting uh, lawyers off, cutting his uh, colleagues off. And it had a, a stilted, uh, jarring quality. It wasn't nearly as satisfying as an in-person argument. Uh, but it was a lot better than nothing, and the 
uh, and allowing the public to listen in, I think, was only good for the court. Uh, two quick questions looking forward. Do you see, we only have six months left in this administration, do you see any uh, possible changes in the court or retirement before the end of the year? If we were to have a retirement, we almost certainly would have had it by now. There were rumors that uh, Thomas or Alito might go. I didn't see the logic of that. And, you know, that that seems to have passed. It'd be quite unusual for a voluntary retirement to happen after the term is over. Uh, you know, we continue to have the, the occasional health scare with uh, Justice Ginsburg, who's 87. But she is certainly not going voluntarily. Right. And... Looking ahead toward the next session, I know some cases were put off this year, again, because of COVID. Uh, What do we see looming ahead? What are you looking forward to coming down the pike? Well, the the big case, Bill, is, believe it or not, yet another challenge to the Affordable Care Act, (laughs) where the Trump administration takes the position, and you got to wonder about the political wisdom of this uh, in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, saying that the court should strike down the entire Affordable Care Act. That's that's the biggest case coming up, but it, it'll it'll turn out to be a pretty rich term. And we really don't know yet what cases they've accepted. Well, they've taken maybe 20 cases. They've, they've taken, for instance, a case on whether uh, the grand jury materials in the Mueller report have to be provided to Congress. Um, they've... Uh, It'll it'll be a pretty good term, but but at least at the moment, not as big as the, this current one. This this last term uh, was, and newspaper writers will often hype up, uh, you know, what just happened. But I I don't I don't I don't think it needs to be hyped up. I think this was a really big term. A uh, blockbuster, buffet of blockbusters. A buffet of blockbusters. We'll, we'll stick with that before. Well, it's a great beat, and you do such a great job at it, Adam Liptak. Thank you so much for your good work, and thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. And that's it for today's podcast with Adam Liptak of the New York Times. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for listening. Always good to have you with us. And of course, we want you to be a full-time subscriber of the Bill Press Pod. So uh, we ask you one more time, if you haven't already done so, uh, wherever you listen to this podcast, pull up the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and that way you are in, you are connected. You'll always be there. By the way, follow me on Twitter, too. Easy. It's free, just on Twitter, at BillPressPod, at BillPressPod. That's it again for today. Stay strong, stay safe, take care of yourself, and come on back for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.